Chris McLeish, we're back again with episode number 75. 75. That is three quarters uh, of the way to a century, if we were measuring I know. years. Isn't, that's very true. Isn't that a scary big number? Who'd have thought we'd have so many things to talk about over 100 episodes? Exactly. It's, see, to be honest, it is a very, very good point, because I'm surprised we haven't exhausted our topic yet, because it is quite niche. It is quite niche, but then mind early days... I sat down, I wrote out loads of stories and I thought, I think I've got enough stories to cover about 70 episodes. And then as we've <laughs> gone on, discovered more and more things. Exactly. It's so true. We have gone down many a Google hole. It's a never ending supply. Other things. It's true. And it's very useful as well that Scottish history is quite bloody. So True. It fits the theme. It does work in our favour. But do you yeah. know what the most annoying thing about being a, in particular, a crime fan? Um, and wanting to focus on Scotland is if you type in Scotland crime, Scotland murders, Scotland whatever, it always comes uh-huh. up with Scotland Yard. <laughs> so I always find good stories and I'm like, this isn't Scotland. This is set in England. <laughs> yeah. I get led down <laughs> the garden I path. I cannot use this. It's so disappointing. So actually finding some pretty unknown niche murders is always a bit of a challenge. And doth thou remember, based on my quizzes of old, why it was called Scotland Yard? I cannot, but I do remember that being a question in the quiz. It's because the original site of Scotland Yard was built on a street literally called Scotland Yard. There you go. Yeah, that's it. The more you know. The more you know. How bleeding are you, Hannah Brown? I am very well, Chris McLeish. Well, do you know in the however many weeks it has been, I had quite a big life event happen. You absolutely did. This time last week. You did. I absolutely did. I passed my driving test. <laughs> That's very exciting. Which is a phrase I generally never thought I would be saying ever <laughs> so that's exciting that's fun that happened <laughs> the freedom you're like Willie Wallace riding a horse <laughs> the absolute freedom of all with a sword in hand and a kilt the only downside to this is that I don't currently have a car of course which is fun because funnily enough one of the things that they don't actually teach you in life is how one procures a car yeah. And what all the different cars mean. I'll be honest, right? I know there's some people who really love their cars and they're really into them and love the technical aspects of it all. And I applaud you. I'm pleased you have that interest. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know what it all means. I don't know what it's all. I want I my car it. to look nice. That's all I really care about. But that can just be as simple as it's a nice colour. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing. So, like, I've been looking at some cars and I've been reading, like, what all these things, and it's got this and it's got that, and this is, it's technical, and I'm like, will it get me to work and back? That'll do the job, that's all you need. <laughs> will, will, the, will the wheel not fall off of it whilst I am driving? So, as much as I want, like, a decent-ish car and it will last me a good wee while and stuff like that, I was like, I think how it looks and the colour is going to play a big part in it, because yeah. I don't think driving around like a luminous orange car yeah which really doesn't fit your vibe aesthetic in life no no. um i think i applaud the people who know what all the other stuff means but honestly it's all gobbledygook to me i was at a friend's house last night and her dad and her uncle were also around and 
we were talking about the fact that I passed my test finally and we were talk talking and he was saying like because my license is an automatic license. Yeah. Because I tried to learn a manual twice and I was not very good at it. Let me tell you. I mean it's you. just it's a I lot just, to think about. There's a lot of elements. I found it very, very stressful and I got really scared of the gears and I was like, do you know what? There's cars that exist now that I don't need to do this in. So I might Absolutely. just drive that. So um yeah, but they were all talk they were talking about like, oh, there's this car and there's this car and oh don't get this, don't do that, don't get this one. And then they went off on a tangent and were just talking about types of cars and they were just saying big technical words that had like letters and numbers in them. And I was just the whole time I I I don't I don't know what you're talking. I don't know what I you're mean, talking about. People <laughs> when I got my new car, my next door neighbour at my mum's house said, uh, what's the engine size? And I was like why does that matter? I have no idea. <laughs> why? Why does that matter? Why do you care? Look at the color. <laughs> Stop asking such a personal question. Um, <laughs> like rude. Past first time, Beautiful. which I was very pleased with. Only four minors, which I will take. You only hit um, four minors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. Oh dear! Considering Disclaimer: I did not hit anyone in my driving test. Day. Thank you very much. Yeah, I trust you. I believe you. <laughs> but it was one of those driving tests. But it felt like everything that could possibly happen happened. There was an obstruction on the road that I had to try and get around. There was a cyclist. There was a cyclist, right, going down a road. But instead of just like cycling on the far left, like every other cyclist. He was going down the centre. He was going down the white lines. And I was literally, and I was on my way back to the test centre. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, why are you cycling there? If you mess this up for me now, I'm going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've made it this far. That is so, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, I, I know someone who failed their test and it was because of um, a mistake that another driver had made. But it was something that caused the instructor to panic. Not the instructor, the tester, to panic and to hit the emergency brake oh, on their side of the car. That is awful. And they're like, that just counts yeah. as an automatic fail. And she was like, but that wasn't my fault at all. Yeah, exactly. No, that's bad. That's not okay. It was really bad. And uh, that was not fair. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Because there was one point, so trying to get round that cyclist, and I managed to get round him, but because I was focusing so much on not, you know, hitting him yeah. or going into any other car, the examiner said something. And because I was con McLeish, I was concentrating so hard because, as I said before, I'm a very nervous human being. So I was concentrating so hard in this. And the entire way around, I was like talking through what I was doing. I was like commentary driving the whole way <laughs> and was literally saying stupid things like, the lights are green, so we're okay to go. <laughs> we're all good to keep going, just to keep myself like focused, focused. on what was in front of me. And um, we got to got to this roundabout, and it's a roundabout I have done thousands of times in my lessons because there's lots of big, scary roundabouts in Glasgow, and I've practiced this one a lot. But she said something, and it just threw me, and I can only describe it as I just froze, like I literally felt myself. Watch, I was watching the traffic and I missed two opportunities to go. And at that point, eventually I went, I was like, I've, I've done, that's it. I've messed, it. I've messed it up. That yeah. was like, that was too long a hesitation. 
So when we got back to the test centre, I was like, it's fine, it's fine. Like, I know it took... What was scaring me the most, it was what it was going to be like, because I'd never sat a driving test before, so I didn't know... It was not knowing what route we were going to go, because there's obviously, like, multiple test routes. I didn't know what route we were going to go. I didn't know what show-me-tell-me questions I was going to get asked. I didn't know what manoeuvre I was going to get. So it was just that whole concept of the unknown that was freaking me out more than what I was doing. Because I knew I could do it. Yeah. (laughs) I knew I could drive, and I could drive safely. So that wasn't the scary part for me. The scary part was just the whole unknown and how it was going to go out. So we got back to the test centre, and my instructor was standing outside the test centre. I was like, oh, no. And I came in. And she's like, okay, Hannah, that's your driving, driving test over. Uh-huh. And that's a pass. And I was like, really? <laughs> Are you serious? And then she brought out the little blue certificate. And I was like, oh my gosh, I will never see other people with these. <laughs> I never thought I was going to have one of my own. I feel so special. That's so, so good. Um, yeah. So, hey, you never know. The next time we might have games night, I might be able to drive over to yours. <gasps> How exciting. And then that night, because it was Valentine's Day, so because this is inadvertent, is that the past two Valentine's Day, I've done like very brave things. Okay. So this year I sat my driver's test and last year I got my ears pierced. Oh, this could so, be like a new um, exactly tradition. Every Valentine's Day you do something that you consider brave. Exactly. That it sounded like I was like saying what you, of... that what you did wasn't brave. <laughs> what I'm saying is like in your own... <laughs> On your own outlook on things, what in seems own, like yeah, something exactly. that takes a bit of bravery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, I, what the, I deem having to take a bit of leap of faith. Wasn't in. a dig. Did you know that Scotland, in fact, Glasgow specifically, is one of the places that claims to have part of St. Valentine's body? Oh, I don't know if I did know I that. I can't remember which part we claim to have. Oh. Yeah. What it's part? a bit weird to slice them up and dish them out, but... It does feel a bit odd, yeah. like, handing them out like a little tray of volivants. That's strange. Well, everyone wanted a slice, so you've got to shoot them a yeah. bit. <laughs> well, I, the only thing that's really happened to me this week was the fact that over the course of recording last week, I was getting iller and iller and iller. So yes, we've already spoken about this. the hot mess that was last week's yes, episode. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we spoke about it just before we started recording, that last week I was feeling a bit iffy at the beginning. And as the mm-hmm. course of the recording went on, I was getting iller and iller and iller. And it yep. is evident when you listen to the episode back. And uh, I just developed a full-blown chest infection, which I've managed yeah. to shake the majority of now. But... Um, I'm so sick of getting chest infections, honestly. <laughs> what is, I swear I get about four or five every year. It sounds like I'm making it up when I tell people. Yeah, that is really not good though. Like, that's concerning. No one should be getting ill as much as that. No. So, so far this year, I've been ill twice. And I was ill in December with a chest infection. Only <laughs> I know! So annoying. <laughs> I don't know what my immune system... All I do is eat fruit and vegetables. I'm practically made of carrots. So yep. the fact that I get ill so often really annoys me. So that's anyone who listened to last uh, week's episode. Uh, I apologise for the uh, yeah, state Yeah, last week's we episode was a bit, a bit crazy because as I was proof listening back, your voice was getting more tired 
and you could tell that you were getting more feverish just because like the way your words were coming out and stuff and then also so I did Veganuary and went on a slight post Veganuary sugar binge <laughs> nice yeah 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 and that day ate quite a lot of cake and then I was in work for a meeting and ate quite a lot of sweets. Then a few of us went out for work afterwards and I had two massive hot chocolates. <laughs> so when I got home, I literally made my dinner and then we went straight to recording. So the sugar hit me like a bus. <laughs> Who needs drugs when you can have sugar? <laughs> literally, it's the, ju- it's the drug of choice in my eyes. Honestly. Yeah. Oh, it was just, it was not, it was not a good time, honestly. Because I was was going, what is wrong with us? (laughs) What is going on? Speaking of last week's episode, however, as soon as we finished recording, I watched The Pale Blue Eye. Did you? I did, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm so glad you said that, because if you'd said something bad, it would have made me sad. (laughs) I've come to one slightly controversial conclusion, though. I don't think Christian Bale is a good actor. Here's where I stand on the Christian Bale thing. Okay. I think he's good in some things, like American Psycho, iconic. Very good. Um, can't imagine anyone else as Patrick Bateman. Oh, did you know, though, however, that the people he was filming that with didn't know what he was going for when he was filming it? So although the film turned out really good... At the time, they all ah. thought he was a terrible actor because they were like, what is this? It's all a bit wacky. Yeah. <laughs> they thought he was off the rails and thought he's, he can't act for Toffee. Oh, Because wow. I googled Christian Bale um, bad actor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that came up. But actually, do you know one of my favourite Christian Bale films is when he's a kid. Oh. Empire of the Sun, which is a Steven Spielberg film about the... I want to say it's the occupation of Singapore and oh, it's Second World War anyway yes and Christian Bale's in a POW camp and that's it's all kind of like Miranda Richardson's in that actually that's just come <gasps> to my mind um yeah but it's really good and he's actually he's really good in it he's maybe only about 13 14 maybe I could that's be lying he could be older than what he looks in the in the film but it's really really good I quite like the Christopher Nolan Batman films I'm so clueless when it comes to superheroes. Okay. He's not a superhero, is he? (laughs) Kind of, I suppose. (laughs) I don't know. Kind of. One of my favourite, my favourite one is is The Dark Knight, which is the second one, which is the one that Heath Ledger's the Joker in. And Heath Ledger just out-acts for Christian Bale in every scene they're in together. (laughs) Which is kind of how I felt about Bale Blue Eye, actually, is that once Harry Melling opened his mouth, I was like, well, Christian, you might as well go home. Yeah, I mean, he was so fantastic. <laughs> Second that Harry Melling opened his mouth, yeah. I just thought, you've, he was you've hit on something here, friend. Yeah. Um, what did you think of his poll? I thought it was amazing. I thought it was so good. He looks kind of unwell. Do you not think he is the strangest looking human being? In like a good way. Yeah, like I do, I find him attractive. I'm glad you said that because I do too. Yeah, in a kind of interesting kind of way. (laughs) Like unconventionally attractive. Yeah. Yeah, he is just kind of a quirky looking chap, but it's no bad thing. I enjoyed him. It's not a bad thing because as we spoke about on the last episode, Poe was a weird looking man himself. He was. So 
And I think that's why in The Raven, which is which we spoke about, which is John John Cusack is too normal looking yeah. to be Poe. Yeah. Did we talk about The Last of Us last week? We you asked if I watched it and I said no, because it's a sort of zombie apocalypty thing and it's not really up my street. But are you watching it still? It's so, so good. Oh. It's so good. The video game itself was cracking. I'm not a gamer per se, but I do occasionally play a game and it's one that I really uh-huh. loved. Um, oh. And uh, I think the TV show is, is completely doing it justice. But some of it is just so, so, so gorgeous. The third episode, the fifth episode, they're two of my favourites so far. Mm-hmm. The third episode, I would say, is within my top three things I've ever seen on TV. That is a big claim. Yeah. That is a big claim. Yeah. Wow. Really good. Really good. Even And the thing is, it's not a programme about zombies. So they do crop up very occasionally. They're not zombies specifically but they those creatures <laughs> crop up occasionally but so right, okay. they are so secondary to the story of human connection family and all that kind of stuff i've got a question would you like a question yes so <laughs> i've just read the question and i'm laughing because i've got my answer already <laughs> okay. so we're talking about films this week mm-hmm and it is, what film moment never fails to make you laugh? Oh, I'm going to stray away from the usual. I'm going to think outside okay. the box. So I'm not going to mention Hocus Pocus. <laughs> You're allowed to mention it. But it's obvious. It, people know that I'll laugh at that. But which, po- but which point? There Where's are the much bit, laughs in the Hocus Pocus. The whole a muck a muck that bit's I mean, that is fabulous. pretty iconic. Just in general, watching Sarah just live day to day and being such a daft queen. <laughs> like, I just love watching her and it makes me laugh. Oh, that, well, that's technically a stage show. Um, but the recording of the Acorn Antiques musical, there's loads yeah. of that in that I will laugh at every single time. Yeah. Uh, particularly Julianne, Julie, Julie Andrews, Julie Walters. There's one particular bit where she's having a drink of coffee and she says that the coffee's bitter and then goes, oh, maybe I should give up on your dad's old pants and get a cafeteria. Yeah. And that <laughs> always cracks me up. Oh, my God. I laugh a lot at anything with Kristen Wiig and Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. That's a cracking film. Oh, I've never seen that. Oh, it's but so good. enough, I was um, earlier on while I was having my dinner before this, I was rewatching Bridesmaids. Love it. I mean, it's an anniversary, isn't it? It is. It's so good. It's so good. The point when she's punching the giant cookie in the garden. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so stupid. I it's love just it. excellent. And she's trying to tip over the solid stone chocolate fountain. <laughs> it's so throwing good. the grass. <laughs> well, do you know who I absolutely adore? It's Rose Byrne. She's so good at it. She's Rose so Byrne's great. Good. She's I, underrated. Roseburn in Spy. Spy is also a cracking film with Melissa oh, McCarthy. Spy is so good. And Miranda Hart's in that too. Yes. What a great jewel. There's so many parts of that film that make me laugh. Some that I can't repeat on the podcast. Um, <laughs> that's a, it's a good film. And the bloopers for Spy as well. 
uh, crack oh, me up. I could watch bloopers so till the cows come home. But if I could make a recommendation for Barb and Star, go to Vista del Mar. It's the weirdest fever dream of a film, but it is so funny. <laughs> I highly recommend it. I might have to watch it tonight now, actually. Uh, but what about yourself? Well, the first one that came to mind, because I am a child, is from an animated film. Of course. Because I'm really five years old. I feel but it. But mine is actually, you, when I say the te- you're probably going with a bit, because I'm sure I've spoken about this before during film club, is in uh, Corpse Bride. Mm-hmm. And it's the point where Victor and Emily go back up to the land of the living the first time. And they're in the forest and the moon's out and Emily's doing her little dance. And just, it's like, (laughs) there's just a shot of kind of Victor in the forefront and Emily in the back. And she gets her foot caught in a branch and her leg comes apart (laughs) and she just face plants the floor. And she just makes like this grunt, and it is the funny. I know it's stop motion animation, but it's so funny. It's so, it's so funny. I do know, the, <laughs> I know leg, the very bit. You know the bit when her leg just comes off. She's just like, oh, isn't <laughs> it? Oh, that's so stupid. And there's another, there's another point as well. And again, another animated film. And have you ever seen Wally? The I have. Film? Love Wally. So mm-hmm. great soundtrack actually. And Wally, yeah. Michael Crawford features in Wally because he's a robot that listens to Hello Dolly. Because why of not? Of course. Yeah, and there's a point where the little robot Wally goes to like the futuristic spaceship that all the humans are living in. There's this little robot that cleans things. Yeah. And there's a point where it's trying to clean Wally, who's been on derelict Earth for hundreds of years. It's it's like it's like a cartoon that like. Um, characters being petty so it's like this, this little cleaning robot that's like cleaning the floor in front of Wally and Wally puts its foot out and it makes another dirty mark and then it, the wee robot cleans it again and then at the end of it Wally just puts its foot on the robot's face and it's like ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Simple pleasures. It's so good. Another bit as well just keeping with the Tim Burton theme that always makes me laugh is that graveyard scene in Beetlejuice when Beetlejuice is like first introduced mm-hmm. to the Maitlands and it's just utter chaos. I think it's because you can tell that Michael Keaton's having a great time at his work. <laughs> so this week, who is first? I think it's myself. I think you could be right. Um, I'm talking about a person this week that has... Okay. Fleetingly featured, I think, I hope, mm-hmm. and hasn't been done in depth. Because uh, I know okay. I've mentioned him, and you've definitely mentioned somebody that he crossed paths with. Okay. And I don't think you spoke about his history in depth. At least I hope I didn't. If I have, oh well, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh inevitable well. eventually we're going to make that mistake. Yeah, exactly. So it's a hey, yeah. 75 episodes worth to keep track of. Like, come on here. <laughs> Yeah. So today I am going to be talking about a gentleman called John Ray. Do you remember this gentleman's name? John Ray does not seem familiar, but I don't disbelieve you when you say that he's been <laughs> mentioned. When I finally I just can't remember. think about what he's famous for, you will know for why he has been mentioned okay. in reference to the story okay. that he connects to. Uh, so he was born in Orkney 
which is a northern okay. isle of Scotland, on the 30th of September, 1813. Yep, so his family had ties to the Highland clan, Clan McRae, and he was one of nine children, and his father was the estate factor for Lord Armadale, who was the Lord Advocate of Scotland. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so Ray elected to study medicine, and where on earth do you think, McLeish, he decided to do that in Scotland? Could it be Edinburgh? Exa- you would think that no one had done that before him. No one's thought of it before. Not no a single person. No one has ever considered that. No one that we've no. ever covered has thought to do that. Uh, so yes, you are correct. He attends the Thank University you. of Edinburgh. He graduates in 1833, and he is licensed to practice medicine by the Royal College of Surgeons. So Ray's father also served as the agent for the Hudson's Bay Company in Stromness. Do you remember that name? It is ringing bells. I hear okay. ding <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the company, founded in 1670 served as a major fur trader throughout the 19th century. When I was reading about their history, which was long and quite complicated, that was the sort of gist that I got Mm -hmm. from it, was that that's kind of what they were known for. Um, So Ray takes up a post as ship surgeon on Canada-bound ship, the Prince of Wales, and in a rather pertinent premonition of what Ray is best known for, he finds himself wintering in Canada when the ship's return route becomes ice-locked. So he accepts a position at Moose Factory, Ontario, acting as both clerk and surgeon. And it is whilst here he hones his survival skills. We know from historical records, including ones we have explored on this podcast, that Victorian Britain, particularly in its early years, was a rather intolerant place. Yeah. Yeah, it was not a good time. Not a secret. Uh In their opinion, fine manners and machines of iron and steel would always win over what they deemed quote-unquote primitive behaviours. But Dr John Ray differed from his contemporaries, so much so he, at a time, was the focus of their ridicule. Mm -hmm. So during his time in Canada, where he would remain for 10 years of his life, Ray took the time to learn skills from the indigenous peoples that lived alongside him. So from the Inuit peoples, he learned how to construct shelter, avoid snow blindness, and to ice the runners of a sled. And considering himself a student of the native Cree peoples, he learned how to maintain and construct snowshoes, as well as how to hunt and store food. All useful skills. All useful skills, particularly when you're living in the Arctic climate that he often frequented. John Ray very much differed from the colonizers he kind of existed alongside in that instead of looking at the, like pretty much every other Victorian human being at the time, looking down upon the indigenous communities that were there because, you know, we were the invaders. We're not, we weren't supposed to be there. <laughs> no, no. Instead of looking at those peoples as though they were uneducated or like the Victorians did, because again, that was their twisted mindset, um, he yeah. realised that these people were best equipped to survive these harsh climates and had been doing it for generations before even yeah. the, the 
colonizers knocked up at the seashore, do you know what I mean? And yeah. instead of looking down upon these people, befriended them and actively wanted to learn about their skills and learn about their culture, which is very unusual for a Victorian gentleman. Yeah. Open-mindedness it was not a strong suit of the Victorian gentleman. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, well done, Mr. Ray. <laughs> yes. So, Ray would also often dress in indigenous clothes, often subjecting himself to the mockery of others. His knowledge, however, equipped him for Arctic survival and travel. His time studying with the native peoples led him to have a great respect for their methods and cultures. Ray also has the claim of being regarded as the best snowshoe walker of his time. Oh, what a claim to fame. Exactly, an excellent but rather obscure claim to fame nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, how many people were competing for this title? <laughs> exactly. So across two months in 1844 and 1845, he covered 1,200 miles on foot using specially designed snowshoes that he designed alongside a local craftsman. I can't remember what group it was that he learned the making of snowshoes from, but he mm -hmm. took these skills and specially designed his own type of snowshoes from this knowledge that he'd gained. It was so cool, honestly. Nice. Yeah. But just as Ray crossed the tundra in 1845, two ships prepared to sail from Britain, charged with filling in a blank upon the map in the northwestern region of the Arctic. Little did Ray know that these two ships would be a major reason for his committal to the history books. But we shall get to that point soon. Oh, a cliffhanger. Yes. Yeah. So, listen, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you'll know where the story's going. <laughs> <laughs> it's featured a lot <clears throat> so Ray's paths cross with fellow Scottish explorer and fur trader Thomas Simpson in the 1830s yes do you remember that name? I did that one you did that <laughs> I did so that one I should remember that because yeah. when I said the name your face was just blank I was like surely you remember your own story no no that's just that's just my face <laughs> but no there was there was a brief moment where you said it and I was going was that me or was that you you know that it was, was you me. I it remember. was you so we cover Simpson's story and the rather suspicious events surrounding his death on episode 47 <laughs> of the podcast that must have been like five years ago it feels it <laughs> yeah it feels it. So yes, Ray was also charged with completing, with helping to complete the mapping of the Arctic coast in the 1840s. Much of Ray's exploration was done on foot, and he was one of the first Europeans to winter in the high Arctic without the aid of a depot ship. So they would have, most explorers would have these ships, basically kind of like a base that you would mm -hmm. either go back to or you'd have provisions on or whatever um but ray was like nah i have i have learned all the necessary skills from the people who live in this climate so why do i need that yeah there you go Fair so nice. it's also during his expeditions does he learn from the inuit how to build igloos oh cool yeah um, the explorer utilized many of his skills he had learned from the indigenous peoples in order to survive the terrain in his travels, he elected to live off the land by means of hunting. Oh, hunting fruit and vegetables. 
<laughs> hunting that elusive fruit and veg amongst the ice. <laughs> <laughs> the only kind of hunting i will uh, allow <laughs> so despite having been mocked by many for his appreciation and admiration of the knowledge he had learned it appeared that ray was perhaps one of the best equipped arctic explorers traditional methods ensured survival whereas acts of hubris committed by those in possession of quote-unquote modern technology rarely paid off even the most technologically advanced explorer ships of the Victorian era could find themselves trapped within the Arctic pack ice. Yes. So, the year is 1848. No one has heard from Her Majesty's ships Erebus and Terror for almost four years. The expedition, headed by Sir John Franklin, is presumed lost. We do talk about this expedition in depth on... An episode. I think it was one of the 30s. I can't quite remember, but it was a long time ago now. So <laughs> a while back. So a search for the lost ships and their crews is mounted by Sir John Richardson. Dr. John Ray is appointed his second in command. So quite high up in this, in the hierarchy of this expedition. He was selected for his knowledge of the terrain within the region and for his respect towards the indigenous people resident in the area. So he was seen as being sort of a good communicator and understanding of their cultures. So Yeah, it's important. To, exactly. It's a, an important person to have. So despite an extensive search, was all, which also included researching without Richardson's direct involvement in the summer of 1849, there appeared to be no evidence of the missing vessels. Even interviews with members of the Inuit did not prove successful as they reported no sightings of neither men nor ships. In 1850, Ray received three letters urging him to continue his search of the Arctic, one from Sir George Simpson, one from Rear Admiral Sir Francis Beaufort, and his name was given... This is just a fun fact that I came across. Um, Sir Francis Beaufort's surname is given to the Beaufort scale, which is the measure of wind speed with respect to land and sea. Wow, I would not have no idea. I don't know what that means, but I appreciate it. That's interesting. Listen, that could be a pub quiz question. It's what not... is the Beaufort scale? And now you know. Yeah, let's not. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't know how to put it into practice, but that's useful. And thank you. I love a quiz. Exactly. If you're on a big ship in the Arctic, knowing what the Beaufort scale is is probably quite helpful. Yes. I'll bear it in mind for my future expeditions. There you go, the next time you're up there. Uh, another letter was sent by Lady Jane Franklin, who was Sir John's widow, although she was somewhat unaware of that fact at the time. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I see. You said widow. Um, yes, that's a shame. She, d she didn't know that. Yeah, she didn't know. Poor girl. Uh, yeah. Uh, Poor so girl. It's, <laughs> it is during an 1853 to 1854 expedition. Does Ray discover that King William Land was, in fact, an island? So he did actually find other things whilst out looking for this, for Franklin and his, his men and the ships. Um, he did come across another sort of part of the map that would get filled in. Handy. And funnily enough, there's a character in the Terror, the TV adaptation, that speculates that it is an island and not a whole piece of land. So that was actually Mr. Ray that founded Are that. We... Nudge to Ray. Yep. It is whilst exploring the Boothia Peninsula in 1854, does Ray converse with local Inuit regarding the lost expedition? 
1854, Ray sends a communication to the Secretary of the Admiralty detailing his findings. He said, and I quote, I learned that a party of quote-unquote white men had perished from want of food some distance to the westward. Subsequently, further particulars were received and a number of articles purchased, which placed the fate of a portion, if not all, of the then survivors of Sir John Franklin's long-lost party beyond a doubt, a fate terrible as the imagination can conceive. In the spring, four winters passed, a party of men amounting to about 40 were seen travelling southward over the ice and dragging a boat with them. The natives were made to understand their ship or ships had been crushed by the ice. At a later date, the same season, the bodies of some 30 persons were discovered on the continent and a face on an island near it. Some of the bodies had been buried, some were in a tent or tents, others under the boat, and several lay scattered about in different directions. From the mutilated state of many of the corpses and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last resource, cannibalism, as a means of prolonging existence. I offer no apology for taking the liberty of addressing you, as I do so from a belief that their lordships would be desirous of being put in possession at as early a date as possible of any tidings, however meagre and unexpectedly obtained, regarding this painfully interesting subject. So Ray also purchased ice. It's a lot of words, right? That's a, that's a lot of words, but I followed it. I fully followed Good. it. Good. There you but go. It's... To sum up in bullet again, points. Yes, 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 yes. Inuit spotted a group of Englishmen walking across mm-hmm. the, the Arctic lands. They appeared emaciated and said that their ships were quote-unquote crushed in the ice. When they came back later, they found that most of these men were dead. And they also mm-hmm. found evidence that pointed towards cannibalism. So, yes, there you go. Who needs to write a letter when you can write bullet points? <laughs> so much easier. I mean, they used the term. <laughs> what was it? Something like uh, an, as an attempt to, of prolonging life or something. Just prolonging say survive. existence. Also, the what's the the um the last line, which is regarding this painfully interesting subject. I think that's. A great it really kind of sums up what we do at this podcast painfully interesting subjects yeah yes that's good i like that a wee bit gothic painfully Um, interesting (laughs) there you go (laughs) thank you mr ray for our new tagline ray also purchased items from the inuit relating to the expedition such as silver plates cutlery and a medal once belonging to franklin himself ray may have solved what was being deemed the franklin question but he was hardly revered for his efforts. In fact, the doctor was widely condemned. Ray's integrity was heavily called into question. Why? Well, here's a good old dose of Victorian prejudice for you. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So how dare he, a man known to quote-unquote fraternise with the indigenous people of Canada, take their story at face value without any evidence, sullying the names of the men of the Royal Navy by insinuating they would commit such a barbaric act as cannibalism. Lady Franklin herself was particularly vicious in her attacks against Ray's findings, as she was desperately attempting to glorify her late husband as the man that had died valiantly whilst discovering the Northwest Passage. Her pal, author Charles Dickens, who we have spoken about before. What a guy. Exactly, he pops up again. He actually doubled down on the attacks towards Ray, would you believe? Charles! 
Yeah. Stating that it was utterly inconceivable, men of the Navy, quote, would or could in any extremity of hunger alleviate that pains of starvation by this horrible means. Because it went against the Victorian sensibilities of the time that men so desperate to stay alive would commit such an act as cannibalism, they fully turned on, like, fully turned on Ray for even broaching the subject, even bringing it up at all. Yeah. Um, even though that is kind of what happened. <laughs> yeah. But they really, like, he, his reputation in Britain was in the, in pr- the proverbial toilet pan. Yeah. <laughs> it was not good. Um, no. But Ray, to his credit, stood by his findings, asserting that the Inuit accounts were truthful. So it's not like his reputation started going away and he was like, mm, actually, maybe I should say that what they said isn't, yeah, isn't accurate. Change his, change his mind. Fully stood by them. Fully Good. stood by them and was like, no, I believe what they said is, is true. I like Ray. So there you go. Ray's got integrity. Does. So he was awarded the £10,000 reward that had been offered to those that discovered the whereabouts of the expedition. And Ray split this money with those that had served on the expedition with him. Oh, nice. Yeah. Were they um, mostly Indigenous people? Or they? I don't know. There was definitely some on his expeditions. Some. There was definitely okay. some. Um, nice. Yeah. So Ray commissioned a ship intended for polar exploration named the Iceberg. Quite apt to its purpose and she launched in 1857 but the ship was lost along with all seven of her men that same year during her first commercial trip it's not a great time not great the iceberg (laughs) yeah he was also a founding member of the hamilton scientific association which is later the hamilton association for the advancement of literature science and art he also married Catherine Thompson in 1860, and he continued to work into his later years. So, Dr. John Ray died on the 22nd of July, 1893. He was buried at St. Magnus's Cathedral in Kirkwall in Orkney, and there is a memorial to Ray depicting him as lying asleep on the ground within the cathedral. I read this really nice, it was a nice article, actually, that was talking about, about Ray's history. It was a person who, as a young boy, had been to see this had seen this memorial in this cathedral and it depicts Ray in his expedition gear sleeping on Mm -hmm. the floor with his weapon as if he's just out like on on and he this person was writing about how they had no idea who this person was or why were they there and why were they dressed like that and that's kind of that kind of sums up what happened to Ray and what happened to Ray's legacy because of what he found about found out about the expedition, which I'm yeah. about to go on to. So, okay. <clears throat> so Ray, by many accounts, had been shunned by the Victorian establishment after declaring his findings regarding the Franklin expedition. Much at Lady Franklin's insistence, Franklin and his officers were posthumously knighted, despite failing to actually find the Northwest Passage. They didn't find it. <laughs> Yeah, so they, they got knighted for... They got knighted for something for... they didn't do. <laughs> yeah, it didn't do. strange. 
So Ray received little to no recognition of his achievements. And you know, he was actually the only major explorer of the era to not receive a knighthood. Oh, really? And is that all because of him? It's a big part of it, yeah. Sharing his findings. Yeah. Weird. Big, big part of it is purely because they were so... How, how dare you? A. Take what um, Indigenous people are saying is fact. And B say that Englishmen would do would commit such such treacheries. We're just like honestly, is that it's the only account that they had of these people of the expedition at all. And even then they were still like, nah, we're not gonna believe that. I just don't get the logic. Stupid. <laughs> I just stupid, don't get the logic. Stupid white men just being stupid and being white. <laughs> Kinda sums up the story of it actually. Yeah. So it was in the May of 1859 was a message discovered in a cairn written by Terror Captain Francis Crozier, stating that Franklin was dead, the ships were locked in pack ice, and that the remaining survivors were making their way for the mainland on foot. Their stated direction of travel justified the Inuit accounts. So was true. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was true. Then there was the discovery of skeletons believed to be of Franklin's men, and these also displayed evidence of cannibalistic activity, such as knife marks upon bones, again further proving the account that Ray had stood by. Yeah. So Ray was an incredibly respectful man for his time, as evidenced through his relationship with the Indigenous peoples of Canada. There were calls by an MP in 2004 that Ray should be rewarded the public recognition he was denied in his lifetime. This same MP urged Parliament to correct the memorials to Franklin at Admiralty Headquarters and Westminster Abbey that incorrectly state him as the first to discover the Northwest Passage. Checking a yeah. leg. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and in 2013, a new memorial to Ray was unveiled at Strumness and its inscription calling him, quote, the discoverer of the final link in the first navigable Northwest Passage. Because the beautiful irony of this entire story is that Dr. John Ray is credited as one of the explorers responsible for the discovery of the fabled Northwest Passage. So he was nice. one of the ones that did it and mapped it. <laughs> beautiful. So it's a lovely little way to round up that story about him yeah. learning all these incredible skills, doing this incredible Arctic stuff, and then being his whole reputation being sullied because people told him the truth so yeah but anyway that is the arctic adventures of dr john ray magic it's kind of funny how our stories can intertwine and certain characters will appear but then you don't know anything about those characters but they're mentioned so fleetingly but then they've actually got such a rich legacy and history attached to them as well i love exactly that. yeah because i remember when we were doing when i did the erebus and terror story i remember when i was getting into the research bit about how they found out what happened because it's so elusive what actually happened to these ships but the inuit accounts are the most solid piece of evidence that we have of what over what happened yeah. to those men and i remember ray's name popping up as him really being the person that did discover what happened because he's the only person yeah. that got any kind of account or any kind of solid evidence. But and he and the fact that he did 
all these incredible things and incredible feats and was by in many regards quite a modern human being for his time um but because of what he said it completely tarnished his reputation and he was effectively scored from the history yeah. books in the Victorian yeah. era and nobody really knows who he was or what he did until now until now now we're <laughs> trying to put trying to put him back back into the history books but i just found that yeah, really good. really fascinating that this gentleman pretty much saw or helped to solve one of the most major nautical mysteries in yeah. history but because it didn't tie in with victorian sensibilities they were like nah you're talking rubbish mate when he wasn't <laughs> get a grip victorian peeps honestly though, it was so funny though when i was <laughs> when i was researching this story and i got to the end but i was reading about like how lady franklin was really against him and that she put in these memorials to the men that oh they died glorious finding the northwest passage when they didn't and they, didn't. they, got they really didn't and john ray did and helped map part of it it was one of the many explorers that helped map a part of it and as cited as that and part was just like kind of like oh get it round your ready for like franklin <laughs> yeah no yeah i get that <laughs> but then also it does it's just a perfect example of elements of history that the people the rich people or the people in power or whatever have been able to write their own version of history that is exactly. accepted as fact for years and years and years exactly um, absolutely just because they have the means to do so lady franklin was a vet i mean don't get me wrong for a woman of her time i suppose very powerful and used her voice when at yeah. a time when women didn't really have one um because she did kind of make them go and search <laughs> for yeah. them but it's just it's so crazy it is it's just wild that the the influence that she had at that time is that she was literally able to erase the truth what are you going to be giving us this week i am giving you something kind of medical <gasps> my gosh but not in the way that we have often covered a slightly different type of medical situation so we're not talking about okay. a person so there is a person cropping up okay but i'm talking more specifically about a condition oh i'm intrigued yes so the most common mental health concerns such as things like anxiety and depression mm -hmm. are being spoken about far more than they ever were which is excellent absolutely but other it's very important keep it going kids keep it but going other equally complex and troubling conditions don't get quite the same attention largely because they are either very rare or just so mysterious that they don't bear thinking about it. and nobody knows that they're really a thing necessarily okay so for centuries delusions were thought to be the result of an imbalance of quote humors which could mean too much black bile that's kind of they were into that kind of stuff <laughs> but those then became evidence to some people of demonic possession then they became evidence of brain disease and were by definition ununderstandable. 
So historically, these things were all concluded to be oddities or Marvel's mysteries. That kind That's of thing. Although I can kind of understand in the 1600s, if you were coughing up black bile, they might think you're possessed. I get that. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that I do too. The 1970s as well, maybe if they did that, you'd start panicking because of yeah. sat- satanic panic. <laughs> you'd maybe get a wee fright. Fair play to you. But for this story, it's important for us to differentiate between hallucination and delusion, which is not a differentiation I'd ever really thought about, thought about before. So a hallucination is when you experience something in one of your five senses that is not real, such as hearing voices. However, a delusion is when you believe something that is not real. It is a fixed false belief not in keeping with social norms. Right, okay. So hallucinations, you're kind of like, that's not real, this is scary. Delusions, you're like, this is 100% real and you believe it completely. Right, okay. For the longest time, delusions were not to be spoken about and were merely concealed behind the veil of a doctor's curtain. But delusions are more than just bizarre quirks of the mind. One delusion that interests me in particular is Cotard delusion. It's French, so I think it's probably Cotard delusion, but Cotard delusion is how I'll go by. Have you ever heard? I've not, but it doesn't sound as fancy in our Scottish accent. (laughs) It's like Marion Cotillard. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I it's get like the word, that, yeah. Like, she's, um, her name technically should be like Marion Cotillard, but yeah. instead we say Marion okay. Cotillard. Doesn't work. But no, I have, don't think I have heard of this. Maybe when you explain it, I might have. Well, in 1874, at Vonve, I think it's Vonve Asylum. This is an asylum just outside of Paris. A 43-year-old woman informs her physician that she has had a strange and revelatory physical experience. She describes an extra, extra, <laughs> she describes an extraordinary feeling, something electrical like lightning, which ran all the way up her back to her head, accompanied by a noise that she thought would split her in two along the spine, much like your man from Corpse Bride. Yes. This event (laughs) set off a chain of ideas about herself, her body and spirit, which led her to this haunting conclusion. She is dead. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Her physician is the prominent neurologist and psychologist, Jules Cotard, and in 1880, following many interviews with the woman he calls Madame X, he presents this new found illness, which he believed to be a form of melancholia, to the medical community. Madame X, he writes, complained that she, quote, did not have a brain, nerves, chest, stomach or guts. All she had left was the skin and bones of her disorganised body. She said that God and the devil didn't exist. She didn't need to eat because she was immune to natural death and the only means to end her life was to burn her alive. Her doctor described her as a lost soul. Beneath the ghoulish melodrama was a real person withdrawing herself from the world, both physically and mentally. So Varney the Vampire was the first popular image of the living dead. 
appearing as the star of a gothic horror serial within the 1840s Penny Dreadful magazines. But walking corpses presented themselves to physicians in real life long before Varney and other iconic characters like Dracula, and centuries before Cotard formally described the phenomenon to the people of medicine. So a couple of examples of that. Petrus Forestus, a 16th century physician in the Dutch Republic, tells the story of a melancholy patient who believed that he was dead and refused to eat anything. So he conjured up a ruse, which was a trick intended to snap the man out of this false belief. The doctor asked an associate to pretend to be another corpse, hide in a chest like a dead man by his bedside. He would occasionally make him sit up and eat something, which caused the melancholy man to ask the stooge whether dead men eat meat. He said (laughs) that of course they did, and so the patient followed suit and was cured. Wow, that was quite a creative way. (laughs) Yeah, it's not what I would have gone for. Um, I'd try hypnotherapy or something like that. (laughs) In 1788, Charles Bonnet reported an elderly woman was preparing a meal when she felt a draft and became paralysed on one side of her body. When feeling, movement and the ability to speak came back to her, she told her daughters to dress her in a shroud and place her in a coffin. For days, she continued to demand that her daughters, friends and maid treat her as if she were dead. They finally gave in, put her in a shroud and lay her out so they could mourn. Even at the wake, the lady continued to fuss with her shroud and complain about its colour. When she finally fell asleep, her family undressed her and put her to bed. Afterwards, she was treated with a powder of precious stones and opium, and her delusions went away, only to return every few months. Psychoanalysis would soon view trauma as the generator of, quote, madness, and uncovering that trauma may well lead to the cure. Mm-hmm. With her delusion, we might imagine that Madame X disconnected from her traumas. She pulls out the connections to these experiences one by one, disassembling her body, dissociating herself, or performing essentially a disappearing act to try and get away from the trauma. Mm-hmm. The belief that she was dead makes her immune from blame for any actions or her character or from being the victim of anything that may have happened to her. That has caused this thing to come upon her. So where did Madame X's belief come from? So she was admitted to the asylum in Volve just three years after the siege of Paris, which ended the Franco-Prussian War by starving the population of Paris into submission. She spoke of a more personal trauma too, and feelings of guilt and shame, confessing to her doctor that she had, quote, done wrong during her first communion. And I am a bit worried what doing wrong during your first communion might mean. Did she choke in her wine? I mean, that wouldn't be so bad to feel guilty or shame shame about. I don't... I have a bad feeling that something really nasty happened to her when she was at her communion. That sounds it. Yeah. And she kind of classic olden days... Well, classic any time, I suppose, where sometimes the victim will feel the guilt and the shame instead of feeling yeah. like they are a victim they, they will feel victim, like they did yeah. something wrong yeah so maybe hopefully it is something as simple as she choked on her wine and uh, <laughs> she just feels awfully guilty about that 
but whatever it was oh, it was dear. a personal trauma enough that it uh it may have been a part of what led yeah. on to her having cotard syndrome Neurologists have continued to investigate organic causes of delusions through ever more sophisticated diagnostic technologies, such as MRI scans, and trace them in many cases to right temporal lesions in the brain. Sometimes they would see a disconnection between the sensory areas of the brain and the limbic system, which is responsible for emotions and memory. This breaks a person's emotional relationship with the outside world and leads to feelings of false reality and delusions of death and negation. So those in a modern context, that kind of makes sense of why this might happen to someone where they might fully believe that they are a corpse. Yeah. (laughs) This newfangled technology business would obviously not have existed in the times of those mentioned above. And by the above, I mean, like, my typed yep. out story. It's above in my visual <laughs> perspective. Did you forget that we don't publish essays? Yes, that's absolutely <laughs> it. So I've said above, and by above, that doesn't mean anything. No. Maybe I should say it to the left in the sound waves. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't exist to the left. Exactly. What we said five minutes ago. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So we can perhaps theorise that undiagnosed organic brain disease may well have been a part of the story alongside any other psychological traumas. Cotard recalls that on examination of Madame X, she showed reduced sensitivity to pain in most areas of her body and would not show reaction to things such as being pricked by a pin. So whatever it is that's affecting her and making her think that she is dead is affecting Mm -hmm. her enough in her brain that her her senses are all just messed up. That's wild. Yeah, the brain is so powerful. It actually is, like, honestly, when you think about it. Because that's literally... She is obviously thinking that. She's believing that that's her reality. She is telling herself that. And that is enough to fully mess with the physical workings of her anatomy. Now, Cotard did try to cure Madame X, but sadly he ran out of time and he died from diphtheria at the age of 49. His patient, still believing that she could not die unless burned, is reported to have starved to death. Ooh. Yeah. How can you diagnose the cotard delusion right okay so so because a cotard a person with cotard delusion has a fixed belief they won't respond to reasoning so you can't talk them out of it yep somebody struggling with this condition will experience extreme distress and it's important to emphasize that the person really and truly understands that what they are feeling is their reality okay Questioning should be designed to bring to light the delusions associated with the condition. And for the patient, this is their truth. So they typically will openly share their story or feeling that they are deceased, even while talking to you. So at at that point, the diagnosis is conclusively made. Essentially, they believe so firmly they are a dead person, despite the fact they're talking to you, that you can go, I see it, cotard. Right, okay. In some cases, the delusion may have some underlying truth to it. A Dr. Gianni De Silva says, quote, I once cared for an elderly man that, with the delusion that his neighbour was stabbing his chest wall and poisoning him. 
As it turned out, he had a cancerous mass in his chest wall that caused him pain and made him nauseous. He incorporated his real physical illness into his delusional beliefs. So it is possible that delusions have elements of truth. Yeah. Now, while while Dr. De Silva hasn't personally had patience with the full Cotard delusion, she has cared for many people who believed that parts of their body were not alive or decaying. Mm-hmm. She says, it's very distressing to these people. I take all delusions seriously, understanding that though it is a delusion, the story may have some factual basis. The patient may not know how to describe their physical concerns in a realistic way due to their mental illness. And it's crucial that medical providers listen beyond the initial story to find the underlying issues and give the proper care. Now, in 2012, an article published in Case Reports in Psychiatry, there were suggestions that ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, can help. And it's known for a treatment for um, depression, and that can also help with Cotard delusion. So there's probably ties it, Cotard delusion probably ties in a bit with depression as well. Right, okay. Because of the feelings that some people have when they're depressed of loneliness and isolation, all that kind of stuff can then, I suppose, evolve. Yep. ECT can be risky, however, potentially triggering memory problems, confusion, nausea, the body and body or muscle aches. So other treatment options may be considered first such as antidepressants, antipsychotics, and mood stabilizers. Behavioral therapy and psychotherapy are also treatment options. While Cotard delusion can be treated successfully, it may take time to find the right method, and it doesn't mean every person who has it will end up free from the grip of their delusion. And I now have a couple of other examples of this delusion happening. Right, okay. So in 2005, Iranian doctors described what may be the most unusual case recorded. A 32-year-old man arrived at their hospital saying that not only was he dead, but that he had turned into a dog. He said that his wife had suffered the same fate. His three daughters, he believed, had also died and been turned into sheep. He said that his relatives had tried to poison him, but that nothing could hurt him because God protected him even in death. He was diagnosed with cotards and clinically and clinical lycanthropy, treated with electroconvulsive therapy and relieved his major symptoms, relieved of his major symptoms. Did you just say clinical lycanthropy? Yes. That's a thing. Yeah, fully. So clinical lycanthropy is the imagination of being transformed into an animal or being an animal. Yeah, because whenever someone says lycanthropy, I automatically think of werewolves. Werewolves, yeah, yeah, yeah. Referred to as, but that's a thing. That's fascinating, isn't it? Wow. uh, The fact that it has a name that is it has a name. It's like a legit recognized in medical. (gasps) It must be more common than we think. Wow. Uh, Greek psychiatrist received a patient in two thousand and three who believed he was literally empty-headed. He had attempted suicide years earlier because he thought it wasn't worth living if he didn't have a brain. He was not treated after the incident and simply returned to work. Once at the hospital, he claimed that he was born without a mind, meaning that his head is empty and without a brain. He left against medical advice after several days, but was readmitted the next year. 
This time, he completed treatment and showed sustained improvement in a follow-up interview months later. Those Greek doctors also treated a 72-year-old woman who went to the ER claiming that all of her organs had melted and she only had skin remaining and that she was practically dead. She was admitted to the hospital and her outcome is not reported. How do you determine that all your organs have melted? She maybe had like a really slushy sounding tummy. Maybe she had a lot of water. Maybe. And you know when you've got like that funny like noise going on when you swish about? Maybe she had that. Maybe she had that, yeah, maybe. (laughs) Um, In 2008, New York psychiatrists reported on a 53-year-old patient, Miss Lee, who complained that she was dead and smelled like rotten fish. She asked her family to take her to the morgue so that she could be with other dead people. Instead, they dialed 911. Miss Lee was admitted to the psychiatric unit where she accused paramedics of trying to burn her house down. After a month or so of a drug regimen, she was released with great improvement in her symptoms. So, like, some of these stories sound kind of, like, so wild that they're, you kind of want to laugh at them, but it is tragic. Like, it's so tragic. It's how, what I just find so fascinating is how people's brains get to that point, that that becomes a logic, that that becomes, instead of people going, "Mm, I'm not feeling quite right maybe i've got mental things going on but instead they go straight to oh no i must be dead yeah and saying things like oh i'm dead oh that's absolutely fine but i'm i'm in the wrong place i need to go to the morgue yeah that's the thing it's like almost an accepting of it they're like all right cool yeah (laughs) and there's like a logic to their yeah oh well i need to be there because that's where the dead people are so that's fine just take me there it's yeah it's interesting just the brain is insane In 2012, Japanese doctors described a 69-year-old patient who declared to one of the doctors, I guess I am dead, I'd like to ask for your opinion. When the doctor asked him whether a dead man could speak, the patient recognised that his condition defied logic, but could not shake his conviction that he was indeed dead. After a year, his delusion passed, but he insisted on the truth of what happened during it. So he would say, now I am alive, but I was once dead at that time. So she, he recovered, but still had the conviction that, yes, I was 100% dead. He also believed that Kim Jong-il was a patient at the same hospital at the same time that he was. Oh, okay. So his delusion just had a wee extra branch. <laughs> we edged it. Yeah. In 2009, Belgian psychiatrists reported the case of an 88-year-old man who came to their hospital with symptoms of depression. The man explained that he was dead and was concerned and anxious that no one had buried him yet. His delusions luckily subsided with treatment. The same doctors also treated a 46-year-old woman who claimed to have not eaten nor gone to the bathroom in months nor slept in years. She explained that all her organs had rotted and she had no blood. After multiple admissions to the hospital and a lapse in taking her medication over the next 10 months, her condition gradually improved. Bringing it home, just to wrap things up. In 1996, a Scottish man who suffered head injury in a motorcycling accident began to believe that he had died from complications during his recovery. Not long after he completed recovery, he and his mother moved from Edinburgh to South Africa The heat, he explained to his doctors, confirmed his belief that he was dead because only hell could be so hot. 
And that is the story of Cotard Delusion. Oh my god, I'm sorry, but that last one. It's like, of course it's a <laughs> Scottish person complaining about the heat. <laughs> <laughs> it, we're true to form. We don't like to exactly. falter. <laughs> uh, we can't let the side down. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, that's funny. It's, it's kind of even, I kind of like it that even suffering from this delusion, uh, there's still, he's got a sense of humour. He's got a sense of humour, exactly. He's the classic about Celtic, <laughs> the, cl- the Celtic wit, love it. Oh my gosh. But um, yeah, I had, I don't think I'd ever heard of that, but that's fascinating, properly fascinating. Yeah. And it's nice that we're at a period of time where we can recognise why this delusion may exist and yeah. it being a, a, a physical condition within the brain. Yeah. But historically, it must have been terrifying. Absolutely. For, for, not just for the people suffering from it, but for the people that are dealing with those who have it. Exactly. Like, how do you, especially when you said that people living with the delusion can't be spoke, they can't, it can't be rationalised, they can't be talked out of it, which. Yeah. To like a, to a Victorian, they must have just been like, what, what, what the hell? <laughs> what yeah, do, what do we do in, in, in an age of just unending superstition? Exactly. Like it would be scary. It um, would be scary. Although I definitely see what you mean about it being a sort of response to unresolved trauma. Like as if, and you've heard people like speaking about that have gone through traumatic incidents and the way you were talking and I suppose it's kind of similar to this that sometimes people with unresolved trauma will literally just shut down and won't speak to anyone and will just be not sort of tuned into the world around them and this just it almost feels like a an offshoot of that that instead of that you just think you're no longer living, but you're just kind of cool with it. You just kind of accept it. Yeah, you're it. just like, oh, no, I'm dead. Well, that's fine. It's also I'll go to the doctors, that, tell them. Yeah, it's that quite a lot of these people are like, oh, I'm, I'm being so inconvenient because I'm dead and I'm not in the right place. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so just... It's bizarre. It's so hard to wrap your head around. Obviously, these people who've got it fully believe it and it makes complete sense to them. Yeah. But it's difficult to see that from an outsider's perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's kind of magic that there was, that we had big um, Cotard in the late 1800s who was quite open to discussing it with Madame X and actually trying to help treat her and uncover what it is that was causing it. As always, please pop along to our Instagram and our Facebook. Give us likes and follows there. We post all of our corresponding photos up there every week and it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story, along with our Magic Hat Mondays where you can give your responses to our questions, our We Love a Link Wednesdays where we join links between different stories that we've told, and of course, Fun Fact Friday where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact. If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or messages it over, it will be written down on a little sheet of paper, folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. 
Also, if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review, it would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world. And thank you for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. Was that gothic? A wee bit. <laughs>